0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson here on Hamilton Today. Welcome to the show. It's beautiful outside today. Just gorgeous. Tomorrow is supposed to be the day that we say forever, at least for this year, goodbye to summer or any remnants of summer. And it's supposed to like go, (laughs) but for today, oh, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful outside. Have you been following this story, by the way, I I saw this earlier and I I know this has been going on. People have been talking about this. Have you followed this story about the pilot who tried to turn off the the engines in mid-flight? Have you heard this story? This guy who was arrested, 44-year-old, tried to turn off the plane's engines as it was flying, told authorities he'd been taking psychedelic mushrooms. How do people who are flying commercial aircraft... (laughs) get to bring psychedelic mushrooms into the cockpit? Is there no security? And your co-pilot, like when you start popping a mushroom, does your co-pilot not say, hey, uh, Bob, what are you eating there? And then when you start acting totally bonkers, does your co-pilot not sort of lock you? There's got to be a way to lock you out, no? Anyway, let's hope that next time you take a flight, the pilot of your plane is not on magic mushrooms that seems to be a bad combination commercial jetliners and totally stoned pilots <laughs> it's not it's not a good thing it is i assure good, you it is a good thing if you consider the fact that it's a band's name uh which one
2: stone temple pilots well
1: stone temple pilots yeah not stoned commercial pilots that's a whole different thing <laughs> that's they, a different story yeah their their catalog of, of songs is not nearly as impressive let me tell you what's coming up on the show today. We're gonna to be talking about a partnership between Mohawk College and City Housing Hamilton doing some uh, some amazing things. We'll be getting into that one shortly. Uh, historic sites, you know, this is a, a topic that comes up now and again in this city and others. What buildings should be designated as historic? Because if you designate a building, if it gets a designation, there are all kinds of rules on what can then happen to that building. It can't be knocked down renovations have to follow certain protocols. There are very few, there are some, but there are very few people who are really interested in having their home designated a historic landmark for that reason, but should there be some that we just tell the people too bad, so sad, your house is one, and that's going to be the case of it. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that one. Hookahs, water pipes being banned in the city. Why are we banning those? We'll talk about that one over the course of the show today, we'll be chatting about a a new survey when we were talking about this yesterday, about the AI and people not being able to understand the difference between real news and fake news. What does this mean for the journalism industry? We'll talk about that one next hour. Here's one that, uh, oh, thank goodness somebody stepped in on this one. Remember a few months back. Maybe it was longer than that now, but remember a few months back when we heard the story that Paul Bernardo was going to be transferred to a medium security prison? Seems Paul Bernardo was planning to make a statement through his lawyer to explain the whole situation. Someone thankfully got in there and said, no, we're not having public statements from Paul Bernardo. And as much as some people might've said, oh, I'd be kind of interested to hear what Paul Bernardo has to say. I, I Once you've committed certain crimes, I'm fully of the view that the whole, as much as I've said many times, I am a free speech advocate. I am not a free speech advocate for multiple murderers. They they have lost that free speech right, as far as I'm concerned. So thank goodness, but we'll talk about that one. But what are the rules? What Who can can? Can anybody or can nobody speak from prison? Is this just made up on individual case basis or... Or what? Uh, Monster Truck. Monster Truck. Hamilton Band. Great Hamilton Band. Jeremy Weiderman is going to join us. He is a guitarist for Monster Truck. They are now going to be playing right before the Grey Cup as part of the Grey Cup street party. We'll talk to Jeremy and much, 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 much more. By the way, uh, the Twitter poll or X poll or whatever you call it, I just, one of these days, I've said this every day, one of these days we have to finally decide what we're going to call it and just go with that. It's either X or Twitter, but. Uh, the Twitter poll today, have you had enough of Taylor Swift mania? Two answers, two choices. Yes, please make it stop, or no, I'm a certified Swifty. There should be a third one saying, yes, please make it stop and erase from my brain all the stuff that I've seen to this point. Because holy jumping jelly beans, it has been too much. Enough Taylor Swift. <laughs> enough Taylor Swift. I, I mean, mean, it's good for ratings though, if you think about it. You feel
3: oh, very strongly about this thought. I just,
1: enough Taylor Swift. It's just, it's, I, I don't, I, I have nothing against Taylor Swift. It's that just enough Taylor Swift. I, I, I am agnostic towards Taylor Swift. I neither <laughs> like her or dislike her. It's just, holy moly, enough Taylor Swift. But yay, hey, that is, you are entire, that's why we have a poll. You can vote the complete opposite of me. What would you have voted?
4: I don't, I'm
3: indifferent. It, I don't, I don't see that much of it. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I guess maybe I don't pay attention. I don't don't
1: And just wait till next fall when she's about to come to Toronto. Yeah. It'll be wall to wall swift. Ugh. What's anyway.
3: the deal with their, the friendship bracelets? That's, I don't know. Do you understand that? I don't even know what, don't what that is. Yeah, is she I wearing
1: friendship bracelets now with Travis Kelsey? Th-
3: that's what all the kids wear when they go see the movie. They like, it's up to their elbows. They make these friendship bracelets and
4: I guess they trade with each other.
1: Well, I guess it's no different than hockey cards once upon a time, except that Taylor Swift is making even more money because there's a woman who just doesn't have enough dough yet. It is a surprise to absolutely no one, I guarantee you that the city of Hamilton and the surrounding area and much of many other places has housing problems right now, a housing crisis. We just don't have enough stock and the stock that is available is generally, if not exclusively, exceedingly expensive. And there are some people who can afford that, but there's also at the other end, a lot of people who need affordable housing and it doesn't exist. Well, there is a new partnership between Mohawk College and City Housing Hamilton that is trying to make a, well, I was going to say make a small dent. Any dent is a good dent. Let's put it that way. I was, You know, it's it's not, considering the need, it's not enormous, but it doesn't have to be enormous. Anything that is being done that puts people into a place is a great Great start. In this case, uh, 63 students from the Construction Engineering Technician Building Renovation Program at Mohawk are involved in this. I want to bring in Samara Young. She is the Associate Dean of Building Systems and Sustainability at Mohawk College. Dr. Samara, thanks for doing this.
3: Thanks so much for having us, Scott.
1: This, I mean, this sounds like it's the perfect match of something that is going to give kids a chance to learn something. And if we're going to get them learning something, let's make it so that they're not just throwing out their project at the end of the semester, but it matters.
5: Absolutely. And
3: what happens with this opportunity, City Housing Hamilton, as we all know, has an incredible need to turn over their units quickly. Um, and, uh, and then within our program, we have an incredible demand to make sure our students are provided with hands-on shop projects. And so this is a great opportunity to leverage units, existing units that will resemble and be exactly those projects that those students will see when they get into industry. So this is an opportunity for them to learn, apply the skills in a real-world application. Uh, These students get to do everything from a review of units, estimate the materials required, taking a look at some of the key projects, prioritizing those key projects, so all around it it does provide an excellent opportunity for both Mohawk and of course city housing hamilton.
1: So what exactly are the students going to be doing?
3: So when they get into the unit one of the first things they do they work very really closely with our incredible faculty team and the first thing they do is an assessment of the unit what is in need of repair? Are we going to be replacing drywall? Do we need to pull up flooring? Are we going to be redoing a kitchen unit, um, bathroom vanity? So think of anything that might be in a house or in an apartment, what might need to be replaced. Essentially, it's a refresh uh, and a tidy up to make sure that the next uh, occupants of the unit get to have a nice fresh space. So those students get to go in and they sort of assess. And so the projects include anything from uh, floor replacement, vanity replacement, uh, insulation, making sure that the walls are patched and drywalled properly. Installation of carpet on stairs. Uh, so there's quite a quite a scope of work that they could be involved in.
1: The fact that they're in the construction engineering technician building renovation program, uh, I don't know that program. Is this one where when you finish this, you should be able to step in and do a little bit of everything? In other words, when the kids, when the students go to these homes, are they expected that they can do all the stuff that needs to be done, or are there specialties?
5: So
3: it's an amazing program that really sort of sets you off in a few different directions. It actually has um, a starting point for those that want to pursue an apprenticeship and get their carpentry certification. Those that want to set off and start their own businesses, a lot of smaller home renovation businesses in the local Hamilton area actually got their start working with Mohawk as a student. And so we we set them up to really be in a position to be like a general contractor so they can be on the tools themselves, but they also know how to bring in the appropriate subcontract trades as they need to.
1: And this is, you know, they're doing an amazing thing by doing this. Whether whether this is their choice or not doesn't matter. They're doing it, and it's great. Do they get graded on it, though?
3: Absolutely. So this project represents a shop class. So instead of them going into one of our really great shops on campus, this now becomes an extended classroom for us. And so they absolutely are graded. The projects, the work that they are doing, the safety and the health and safety requirements that they're obligated to meet on site, all of that is brought into their final grade for the course.
1: So... I, you know, I'm going to assume, and I believe this to be the case, that they are all enthusiastic to do this anyway because it can make a difference. But even if somebody wasn't, there's still motivation to do an excellent job because there is going to be part of their course. They're, they're great on this one.
3: Absolutely. And, and you're right. You know, kind of coming into a city uh, housing unit and saying this is my classroom now. You know, what's really great is that the city housing Hamilton team has done a great job of aligning our learning outcomes of that particular SHOP program with the work that needs to be done on these units and so we have a great partner who took the time to work with us to say you know we need these students to achieve these skills by the time they're done we have to make sure the work that we're doing in these units aligns with that and this project was such a great opportunity to do that and therefore when students get in they start to see the shop projects the, the work that needs to be done in the units. they very quickly realize how well it aligns to what they needed to do whether it's in a shop or whether it's in a unit.
1: And the other great thing about this, I would assume, is uh, you're never going to run out of units. I, I I expect that as long as this program is going, you're probably always going to be able to find units somewhere in town to be able to do this.
3: You're you're absolutely right, Scott. And you know, we work closely with the City Housing Hamilton team. Uh, they they give us, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, quite a list of units that are in need, and so we try to work with them to prioritize. Um, Obviously, proximity to campus is helpful, but definitely not the only determining factor. We look at, you know, what units do they need to get into the community quickly? Uh, This is actually the second round of units we did uh another project in our last spring also really successful so we've got a model here uh in the past we've partnered with uh folks like habitat for humanity to do some build projects but this one seems to really have a rhythm uh and is working really well for both sides
1: and you know we gotta go but i i just i can't believe that if you're in school and you have to do a project anyway to know that you're doing something that matters as opposed to, as I said off the top, just doing something that the professor will read once and then you're going to put it in a drawer or throw it in the garbage and that's the end of it. This is just so much better, so much of a better way to do it, that it you leave a, a legacy for somebody with this. It's a, it's a great idea. Uh, Sarah Young is the Associate Dean of Building Systems and Sustainability at Mohawk College. Thanks for this. Thank
3: you so much, Scott. Really
1: appreciate it and uh, we're excited to show you what we do next. Uh, yeah, oops. My elbow hit the button there and Samara was gone. Sorry, Samara, (laughs) wasn't cutting you off. Uh, Yeah, I mean, what a great idea. Because I recently was going through some stuff in our house, cleaning out some boxes in the basement and came across a few university papers of mine. And the fact that I still had them and had not looked at them since I graduated tells you they served, I mean, they served the purpose of helping me pass my course, barely but but that was it. This is something that matters it's it's a It's such a much better idea, such a much better application. Good for them for doing this one. There is a beautiful building at fifty four Hess Street South that is apparently needing some significant repairs, like a lot of repairs according to the owner and their lawyer. And yet the building is old and, as I say, beautiful. And so there is a push on to designate it as a historic building under the Ontario Heritage Act, which would then prevent it from being destroyed and would put different rules on as far as renovations and things. These are always tricky issues, but what do we do in cases like this? What should we do? Oh, let's talk about this one specifically. Shannon Kyles is the president of the Architectural Conservancy of Ontario. She joins us now. Sharon, uh, thanks for the time today. I really appreciate it. Oh,
5: it's a pleasure being here. Thank
1: you. This is, uh, I'm looking at the photo of the building right now, and unquestionably, this is a, a gorgeous old building that, on its face, leaving aside all the challenges and peripheral issues, if all was equal, I don't know, and you probably agree, I don't know there's anybody that would say we should get rid of this building. It's beautiful. Yes,
5: it is. It's beautiful, and it's, it's part of it's a second empire building which is 1870s to 1900 style and it's part of a cluster of second empire buildings that in the area
1: so what we have so again i i i don't disagree that you know this is a if you if you see the photo it's, it's just a beautiful beautiful building however the problem with these situations and the challenge maybe is a better word is that according to the owners and their lawyer, the building itself is in a state of pretty severe physical deterioration, and they've had a consulting engineer recommend that it should be demolished. Now, if there was to be a heritage designation put on this, they would not be able to do that, correct?
5: Right. They would not. If it becomes designated, then you can't demolish it.
1: And if there was a heritage designation, any renovations that would be done to that building would also have to follow certain rules and certain protocols, correct?
5: Yes, that's true. But having said that, I think it would probably only be the facade that is designated. Designation doesn't mean that you can't do anything. Designation means that you can't change the character of the building or the essential architectural features. So people think that you, everybody's afraid of bigger building designated because they think they won't be able to put it in a bathroom or change the kitchen. That's not the case at all. What they do when they designate is they designate a certain architectural feature that make an important building. So if the building is designated and anything that had to do with electrical or plumbing or any of that stuff is absolutely fun to get a firm to do that with no problem at all.
1: Okay. i tell you what we're going to do. Uh, Shannon, we have a terrible connection right now. I'm going to get, uh, we're going to hang up. We're going to get Tom to give you a call back and hopefully we can just make a better connection because I really want to hear what you have to say. But right now it's um, it's rough. So we're going to call uh, call Shannon right back. But again, the the, the argument here is, and, and where this thing, and, and we've had these cases in the city before, and they're always difficult, is if it's designated, then the owners can't do with it what they want to do. If it's not designated, they could, but, and we'll ask Sharon as soon as she comes back on, what happens then to, if, if the people who own it say, well, that's just wildly costly. Where is the money coming from for me if I have to pay tons of money to renovate, to keep whatever this building that is just not in acceptable shape what happens because it's always it's always the question what happens to the people who own the place and what should they do with the money that is that is going to be involved in doing this I mean this building let's let's see if we can try again here Shannon are we back Yes. that's well better. hopefully hopefully a little better so just while you were gone I was just saying the the the, the question about this the debate about this always then becomes We want to keep our heritage buildings, but for the person who owns it, this can then become an expensive proposition if they say it's too expensive and fixing it up is going to require tons of money and I don't want to spend that. It'll be better just to demolish it. How do we balance the cost that the owner may incur versus the historic element of it?
5: It, It's an excellent question. And there are certainly restoration people who are gouging and making. An awful lot of money, but there are also reasonably priced ones. And frankly, if you have a building that size and that quality, there's, I I just, I've been in construction and architecture for 40 years. I don't, I just don't see how it's going to be left to take something down and then rebuild it. Um, I I think that, you know, the basic bones of that building are absolutely solid. And there's a lot that can be done to it. But um, I think the, the whole, when people say it's far too expensive to restore, uh, they're just cutting it and putting in you know, last week's cutting edge. Well, think about the fact that when you gut it and, and put it in the last week's cutting edge, you're going to have to do that every 20 years. Because if you want to keep it modern, if you want to keep it looking like what was in a magazine last week, then you're going to have to keep restoring it or, or renovating it. Whereas if you restore it and do it properly, it's good for another 150 years.
1: Hmm. Should, uh, first of all, before I say should, are there any kind of grants or anything like that for someone who has a building they own designated as heritage? So there are going to be rules they have to follow and maybe more expensive rules. Are there any kind of grants that people can get to help them with that if they are now essentially forced into handling their building a certain way?
5: Yes. And, and it's very true that they are forced into handling their building in a certain way and, and keeping it to, to, to the standards that it was um, built by. Are, City of Hamilton is, has some grants. It is not, uh, although the, the Heritage Planner is fantastic and people with heritage are doing their very best, don't have be as much of a focus on heritage as they could. And the grants aren't huge, but they certainly are um thousands of dollars in grants available to help you. I think it's 50% of the cost. I, I'm not exactly sure. But there are grants available, and the Architectural Conservancy of Ontario Hamilton Region Branch is looking to get more money for this because this is, you know, heritage tourism is becoming a big thing. And when people come to the city of Hamilton, where do they go? They go to the historic places. They go to Baltimore. They go to the stern, They go to, you know, uh, the gardens and gardens. You remember City Hall. All of these buildings have been threatened by demolition. So, it's, and the Lister Rock, the whole area, that whole King and James area, all of that area, people have had to stay over the last 50 years. And now it's where everybody focuses. It's where everybody wants to visit. They don't want to visit some new glass high rise because there's a new glass high rise mm. on every corner in the planet. They want to visit the historic areas. So, yes, there is. Um, There are some grants that are available. I don't think they're nearly enough, and we're trying to push for more because the more money that you put into restoring the character of a city, the better the population is, the happier they are, better places that they have to go to, and it's also good for tourism. Mm.
1: Shannon Kyle's, president of the Architectural Conservancy of Ontario, really appreciate the time for doing this today. Thank you.
5: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: I wish, I wish we had better connection. I apologize to the listeners for that. It was uh, the best we could do. Just couldn't make it work any better. But um, it is such, a, it's always a fascinating topic. What do you do to make someone who owns a building do what you want them to do with their building? And should there be more grants, as she says, it's uh, it's always a tricky one. One thing you won't be doing at the Great Cup street party is smoking your hookah. That <laughs> Thanks to a new bylaw that bans water pipe smoking in public places and workplacing, a water pipe or a hookah, as you probably would know it better, um, has, I understand, been separated from other rules around smoking for a long time, but now it is under the same umbrella. Jan Johnson is manager of tobacco control with Hamilton Public Health Services joins us now. Jan, how are you today?
4: I'm great. How are you?
1: I'm fantastic. Thank you for doing this. Why, up until now, if my Previous comment was correct, and I think it was. Why was a hookah separated from other tobacco products as far as bans and public property until now?
4: Well, I've always thought it's been a um, regulatory gap um, in terms of um, uh, the Smoke-Free Ontario Act. Uh, And I think the reason why is because a lot of... I I guess a lot of the belief is that it's just um, harmless berries and herbs and other materials that are not harmful to people's health. And uh, in fact, that is uh, absolutely incorrect. And so I think what we're doing here is is now protecting the safety of uh, Hamilton residents, especially vulnerable populations in terms of um, health.
1: When Okay, so the way the wording is from the city's press release, uh, Hamilton City Council has approved a new bylaw banning water pipe smoking in public places and workplaces. I just want to confirm, when it says public places, that means anywhere the public can go, but it could still mean a private, you can't, you can't have a private hookah store now, can you or can you?
4: So in terms of like hookah lounges or uh, places where uh, hookah uh, or the water pipe is is being uh, smoked, it's um, in public places such as restaurants uh, will have this. And so we wanted to align with the Smoke-Free Ontario Act in, in terms of, um, you know, to protect people from uh, secondhand smoke. Um, so it, we can't be smoking this in anywhere that you can smoke cigarettes. We want to align it with, um, the Smoke Free Ontario Act so that you can't smoke your hookah anywhere that you can not smoke cigarettes.
1: So, so the idea, cause there are hookah lounges or at least there have been. So yep. are those now illegal or are those an exception somehow?
4: No, they're not an exception. Okay. Okay. Um. Yeah so it so what we're going into there's about 10 licensed uh, uh hookah establishments um in uh in the city and so they will um, no longer be able to uh provide um, hookah to be smoked in their establishments because it is a public place and it is a workplace.
1: Now he- here's uh, me betraying my ignorance, having never smoked a hookah. So, uh, you know, well, we can figure this out as we go along, but I, I was kind of like you, the idea that this was different from cigarettes or pipes or cigars. I had always thought that it was a bit of a different product. Is it essentially then the same as what's in all the other stuff?
4: so the risks are um and and the harms to to folks are very similar to cigarettes and and there's some studies out there that say that it could be even more harmful and so i'm not sure like you know i'm going to explain exactly what a water pipe is so really it's a device we use to smoke moist tobacco and and or like other tobacco herbal um, or other herbal products Um, the substance that's smoked in the water pipe is often referred to as shisha and so the ingredients in shisha it varies and and So folks, you know, they could put in dried plants, herbs, tobacco, leaves, preservatives, flavorings, and it's mixed usually with molasses or honey. That gives it that uh, sweet taste. And the water pipe uses this charcoal to heat the shisha. It produces the smoke. It's drawn into the water. Uh, It's cooled there and then it's inhaled using a hose and a mouthpiece. Um, And, you know, people will, um, you know, generally like pass the the hookah or the water pipe around um as a way to uh, i guess um enjoy the hookah session and so the dangers with that is that you know it, it it does take about 20 to 80 minutes right for a hookah session it does put others at risk due to the high levels of toxic compounds in there like in secondhand smoke um, i'm not sure if you haven't heard that secondhand smoke is dangerous, yes, right? But it doesn't heard. matter if it's if it's tobacco smoke or or um, or hookah smoke from from herbs. It does contain harmful toxins and chemicals, um, and so generally, with the exception of nicotine, all the toxicants uh, measured in herbal smart in herbal smoke equal or exceed those found in tobacco water pipe smoke.
1: So. Okay. So even if it's not tobacco, then Mm -hmm. it still would be illegal. That's right. Okay. Uh, And and so if it's not tobacco, and this is where I think it starts to get a little bit complicated, if it's not tobacco, then we look and we go, okay, but is vaping allowed because vaping wouldn't necessarily be tobacco so it's it could be secondhand you could get a, a, a an emission from that but we allow vaping elsewhere and, and, I, and to be honest I've completely lost track of even what the rules publicly are about smoking cannabis in public places in the city um, and maybe that's part of the issue here maybe it's because things have been all over the map and there's been different rules that it's really hard to keep track of what is legal and what is illegal right now but I mean do we is the ultimate goal here then to get to anything that is puffed or smoked would be not allowed in a public place?
4: That's absolutely right, because the Smoke-Free Ontario Act, right, you can't smoke in a public place or a workplace, um, uh, around schools, outdoor patios, and you can't vape there, and you cannot smoke cannabis there. You can't smoke or vape anywhere that is an enclosed public place, an enclosed workplace, outdoor patios, or, uh, the city of Hamilton does have a bylaw. We can't, uh, do that in city owned outdoor sports and recreation areas as mm.
1: well. It is uh, well, there you go. So if you were going to plan to take your hookah to the rink and, uh, <laughs> smoke it while you're watching your kid play in their house league hockey game, don't that's, uh, that's the new rule. Just don't do that. Uh, Jan Johnson is manager of tobacco control with Hamilton public health services. Appreciate the time today. Thank you.
4: Well, thanks so much for having me.
0: If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve
4: into the issue
0: until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
1: There is new state-of-the-art cancer screening equipment, including 3D mammogram technology that is arriving at St. Joe's Hospital or has arrived, that is going to, we are told, make screening patients in a quicker, more timely fashion much easier to do. Dr. Colm Boylan is the Chief of Diagnostic Imaging at St. Joe's Healthcare in Hamilton, joins us now. Doctor, thank you for the time today.
6: Thanks uh, thanks very much for having me. Good to be here.
1: This is, uh, I would think this is an important thing, thing any time but what we've been hearing is when, as we're still coming out of COVID, I mean, I know COVID is basically, we like to believe a little bit in the rearview mirror, but so many people seem to fall behind as far as being screened or getting treatment or those kind of things. This seems like this would be an absolutely ideal time to create something that it will, would allow people in Hamilton to move quicker through the system and get seen more quickly.
6: No, that's right. Um, so we're still dealing with the after effects of COVID And we certainly had a a lot of patients um, deferring screening um, for, you know, breast imaging during that time, screening mammograms were put to one side. And um, as a result of that, we have a a large number of patients who are still, you know, haven't been screened during that time. And we're in the process of catching up with those screening volumes. So um, this additional equipment is, um, it's a great help to us in doing that. It's going to increase the the volume of, of work that we can actually do on an ongoing basis. And um, that means we'll be able to see patients in a more timely fashion, um, even for screening. But also when we find something on a screening mammogram, we'll be able to get those patients back faster. We'll be able to evaluate them more thoroughly and um, make sure that there's nothing there. And if there is something there, that we'll be able to get a diagnosis quickly and be able to move those patients on to the next step quickly.
1: Have we seen an uptick in diagnosed cases coming out of COVID because of the fact that many people didn't get checked during COVID? So suddenly at the end, there was a surge.
6: Well, well, as a matter of fact, what we did see was, and this is not just in breast imaging, but we saw a number of cases of all different types of cancers presenting later than would normally be expected. So we did find that a number of patients because they had deferred their, you know, their workups, their investigations. They ended up presenting at a later stage. And that's certainly true for breast cancer, but it's also true across other areas as well.
1: Well, that was going to be the follow-up. Yeah, so you beat me to it. But yes, I I mean, I expect that that would be for all kinds of cancers, that uh, those two years or two and a half years would have created chaos. Because if you're not getting checked and something is going wrong, it's only going to have a chance to grow and get to a point that's more problematic.
6: Yeah, and, you know, we certainly understand why it happened. You know, there was a lot of fear and anxiety um during that time and um you know we, we had gone through various iterations of you know con- controlling the amount of work and reducing the amount of outpatient work we that we did during that time so it, it was natural that that people would defer these things even when they were symptomatic and um again in all of these situations if patients are symptomatic we want to see them regardless of what the um the status of covid or other is, you know, hospitals are, you know, well-protected places to be in these scenarios. And um, it's better to get these things checked out Mm -hmm. quickly when, when you have them.
1: Doctor this is a different issue but and this may be a really ridiculous question I don't know but is there is there any embarrassment or shame or anything around mammograms or breast cancer screening these days I would assume that's completely gone whatever if that existed in the past that that no longer exists but is is there still any issue around people being embarrassed or uncomfortable with having that done
6: I, I don't really more um, I think women in general are, um, are, are, you know, women are generally pretty good when it comes to health consciousness. And um, I think they are, they're pretty good when it comes to um, so putting themselves forward for screening examinations. And um, I don't think that piece, you know, obviously the environment that we, we've tried to create at St. Joe's, um, it's an outpatient setting. It's a well woman It's a more relaxing type of environment that should really minimize any any discomfort or um, you know other sort of embarrassment factors that women would, would have during that. And I think for the most, um, you know, breast cancer screening has become such a common thing that um, that's less of a problem with this particular um, screening modality.
1: With this new equipment, and I don't know, is it up and running yet or is it about to be up and running?
6: it is up and running and um, so it's up and running um for so on this equipment we can do screening mammograms but we can also do 3d mammography or tomosynthesis which is um, a technique that allows us to to make very fine image samples of the breast we can image the breast down to one millimeter slice thickness through the breast and it gives us a really great way of of evaluating the breast so It means that when we find abnormalities and mammograms, we're very quickly able to resolve those or or confirm that they're true using that technique. And it's also good for screening patients who may have had previous surgery or who have high breast density or who have, um, you know, some risk of of having breast cancer. So that's a great addition to the the toolkit that we have. It also does contrast enhanced mammography, which is another very important tool, which allows us to, um, to really look at the function of any abnormality that might see in the breast. So in in the easiest way of thinking about it, when we inject contrast into the body, and um, breast tumors, and breast cancers, and high grade, what's known as high grade DCIS, has a tendency to pick up contrast. And we can see that on mammograms whenever we inject contrast. So that technique allows us to see those things. And it means that um, we're able to be way more specific about
1: That is uh, Dr. Cole oh, Boylan. Yeah. Uh, sorry, we we're just losing you there. We, we're out of time. But we, uh, Dr. Cole Boylan, Chief Diagnostic Imaging, Chief of Diagnostic Imaging at St. Joseph's Healthcare. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
6: No problem. Cheers. Bye-bye.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: The majority of Canadians say... They wouldn't be able to, they don't believe that they will be able or could tell the difference between real news and AI-generated news. Real news and fake news, essentially. Now, it could be real news and real news. It gets very complicated because AI doesn't necessarily mean it's fake. But it really is a very blurry line. People don't think that they are capable now. Well, what does this mean? We talked about, you know, what that means for some of the potential downfalls. What does this mean for journalism? Journalism is a business that is facing tough times right now. And I don't know if this is a death now, further death now, or if this is a moment when journalism says, well, wait a second, here is the crack in the door for us to stand apart that if you can't tell... What's real and what's not come to credible, understood, trusted sources because you'll know what's true then. Is that where we are right now? Let me bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin. He's a senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeffrey, thanks for this today.
2: My pleasure, Scott.
1: So is this, as I say, is this the opening for traditional journalism to say, here's where we stand apart and where we can uh, assure people that they're getting the real thing as opposed to whatever else is out there? Or is this simply another step along the way of people trusting nothing?
2: Well, it's all of the above. What's happening is that the Internet, God bless it, um, has allowed for all kinds of information to be shared. And some of it is coming from reliable sources. Some of it's coming from your uncle Fred, who thinks you might be interested in seeing this, but he hasn't verified it, but he thinks it's kind of interesting. And it's also coming from pockets of disinformation. And these are people who are who know that what they're sharing is untrue, that it's wrong, that it's a lie, but they're doing it anyway. And they're doing it because their purpose is A, probably to make some money by having people click on it. And two, because um, there are a number of people in countries that are not worried about spreading information that will undermine our trust in ordinary, reliable, traditionally reliable sources, whether it's media or government or churches or universities. And so what we're seeing now is, uh, in, especially right now in the the so-called fog of war, what's going on in the Middle East and in Ukraine, we're seeing a lot of uh, visuals that are have either been doctored or untrue, or come from another time and place. So that it, to me, it obliges mainstream media organizations uh, like yours, Uh, and the global mail and the cbc to make sure that whatever they're putting on air or on their websites has been verified and they need to have some kind of guarantee that what they're what you're looking at what you're reading what you're listening to is actually true and so that becomes a problem now for media organizations which are much more short-staffed than ever before and it means that a lot of news organizations, I'm not saying who, are saying, oh, well, if it's wrong, we'll correct it online shortly. But that but that leaves impressions. And we're living in a world that is very impressionistic. Um, and people are being very uh, put in a state of considerable turmoil by what they are reading and seeing. And, and it's not just, you know, not just the... Uh, The people who are troublemakers or mischief makers. It's also uh, the New York Times, which had a headline on its website that it kept up there for days, basically saying that the bombing of a hospital by the Israelis killed 500 people. Whereas, in fact, it wasn't, it was a rocket from uh, Islamic Jihad that went off, it went astray, and it hit the parking lot. Now, I think 50 or 60 people were killed and that's horrible enough, but it's not 500 and it wasn't a deliberate attack. Yet the New York Times took a couple of days to take that down from its website. So, I mean, when you can't even trust uh, the New York Times, Who can you trust? Well,
1: that's, you know, get it first, get the scoop has always been an axiom of the media. And I wonder if that has to change completely, that it doesn't matter if we're the last one to get it, but if you know that it's in our paper or on our website or on our TV station or on our radio station, we are willing to put our reputation that it's going to be right. You may have read it elsewhere, but don't believe anything till you come to us.
2: Exactly, and I think that we're still living in a kind of post nine eleven environment where something incredibly horrible happened in the United States, and and in the, in some ways that's similar to what's going on now in the Middle East and in Ukraine, and people are upset and they want everybody to be upset, and I think the obligation for media organizations. Is to say, okay, here's what we know, and here's what we can't verify, and here's what we don't know, and that's not exactly the kind of competitive spirit that uh, you and I know from uh, working in in news organizations. It was let's get it out there now. What you know, we'll sort it out in a minute. Mm. Um, and I think that's the attitude that's coming under coming under question.
1: The big issue with this though, we've got about a minute, so we'll have to keep it sort of tight. But the big issue around this is the one thing the media, the traditional media needs, it pays its staff. There are people who are bloggers who can do it as a hobby. The traditional media pays its staff. There has to be a business model in this. Do you believe people, maybe not today, but down the road will pay for that trust and that credibility? Or is that always now going to be a difficult thing to get people to pay for?
2: I think I found when I worked for National Public Radio in the States that people were willing to pay for news that they considered to be valuable. Um, I guess what I would say is that news organizations in Canada need to go back to those basic values and to uh, figure out ways in which we can make better partners of the public. And I spent some time at NPR as their news ombuds and boy, people were hungry to know, how did that get on the air? Where did it come from? Who are these people? The public really needs to be part of the process, not just as we're shoveling it out there and you take what we give you and uh, and leave us alone until the next hour.
1: It's, uh, it's a fascinating topic, and it's only uh, going to get more fascinating and more confusing. And uh, maybe at some point there's clarity, but uh, we will see. That is a Jeffrey Dvorak, he's a senior fellow at Massey College. Former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough and author of trusting the news in a digital age. You can pick that up where fine books are sold. Jeffrey, (laughs) I always appreciate this. Thanks for doing this.
2: My pleasure, Scott. Cheers.
1: You'll remember back in May, I'm sure you'll remember the story that Paul Bernardo got transferred from maximum security to medium security prison. It created an outrage as it should have. It's, it is ridiculous. It is ridiculous it is absolutely ludicrous that Paul Bernardo is in a medium security prison. Regardless, what we're learning now is uh, through newly released documents, the Correctional Service Canada stopped him from making a statement to the media as this was all going on. He was going to use his, go through his lawyer and make a statement to the media about who knows what. Do we really want to know what Paul Bernardo has to say? And yet at the same time, if he's safe enough and benign enough, which is a bizarre way of describing him, to be in medium security, why shouldn't he be able to speak? Let's bring in Ari Goldkind. He's a Toronto criminal lawyer. He's a legal expert, media commentator. Ari, thanks for doing this today.
7: Great to be with you always.
1: I would suggest that I don't want to hear anything from Paul Bernardo for as long as I live and as long as he lives. Let's get that out of the way, and probably most people would say the same thing. And yet, Ari, if he is safe enough to be put into a medium medium security prison with people who have done nothing remotely similar to what he's done, shouldn't he be allowed to make a statement? Because I'm sure most of the rest of them could if they want.
7: So let's unpack that for a second because there's some interesting talking points there. One, I don't have any problem with him being in a medium security institution because this country is so stupid that for certain people it got rid of the death penalty, and there's no legislation that says just because a human being is a piece of human garbage, which is what Paul Bernardo is, Canada's most notorious serial killer, and don't forget the rapist of over a dozen women. People often forget. Scarborough rapist, yep. That's correct, but people often forget, Scott, that he is also a person who did that. You know, that this is a country that doesn't say in legislation, you should rot and do hard time in solitary, means that if Corrections Canada says, look, he's not going anywhere, he's not a risk to other inmates, where they put him so long as he can escape, can't escape, I'm sorry, is, you know, a bureaucratic policy decision. The part of the story here, and I'm going to touch on something you said, is that you don't have any interest in hearing from him at all. I understand that point completely, Scott, I really do. I, I think you're very well grounded in saying that. I actually disagree. Okay. I think there's tremendous insight that can be learned even from the worst of the worst to hear what they have to say, why they say and do what they do. It's sort of like we all know for Nathaniel Veltman, the killer of the Muslim family in London, every drop of everything he said was publicized from day one because he was a Caucasian killer who killed a Muslim family. You compare that to Audrey Hale in Nashville, the transgender person who wiped out all those kids at the school and was a trans person, that, that person's manifesto has been buried and kept from us. Well, we're either going to hear from all evil or we're going to hear from no evil. And here's the point, which is why I think I wanted to pick up on what you said. The real issue that Canadians are absolutely missing here, Scott, and I really mean this sincerely, is why in the world, if Paul Bernardo wants to talk or he's in prison on your and your listeners tax dollars, why does he have a greater right of privacy than the public who's paying to house him, or even more specifically, The French and Mahaffey families who would like to know what he's doing behind bars that allowed him to be moved to a medium security institution. The idea that you can rape 13 women and murder in the most horrific way a number of other people, and you still maintain this ridiculous, stupid idea of right to privacy, that to me is astoundingly stupid uh, in an increasingly stupid country.
1: Uh, I, uh, so I agree 100% on his right to privacy. I don't believe that should exist. I don't believe that it should have been a surprise that he was being moved to medium security. That should have been announced. If it was good enough to do it, it was good enough to tell people about it. All that stuff I agree with. I don't agree, though with giving him a platform and that's the that's the that's the difference i think all the decisions about him Everybody should know what's happening. And frankly, I would be all for him talking to experts, to cr- criminologists, to psychiatrists, to help them understand for the future. I just don't want to give this guy a platform where he can just spout off on all kinds of stuff and potentially be upsetting people even more, especially the French and Mahaffey families and be some sort of celebrity in a sense that is, you know, that, that that's got suddenly a chance to speak
7: okay now scott here's the point you know i'm i'm one of these weird unicorn dodo bird like guests where i actually think it's good that you and i disagree i think it's good that that there are shows where people disagree agreeably your position is very valid i could advocate it as strong as you are my position is so long as he cannot monetize make money sell a book profit as he tried to do years ago you may most people don't even remember his novel try to yeah so but it's it's almost a buried little detail in his biography that he tried to monetize what he did my view is so long as he doesn't monetize it profit off of it sell one dollar worth of anything my view is he should have every right to speak whether we listen to him or not whether we Follow him or not, whether the Toronto Star or the CBC covers it or not, he has the right to say what he wants. But my view of it, Scott, again, is you take the monetation out I think there's something important in an increasingly, okay. growingly evil society to hear what evil says rather than pretend it doesn't walk amongst us. Ari, right,
1: I got 30 seconds, so we got to do this quickly. Are the yeah. other people, if you are in a medium security prison, would you normally be able to say, if someone was interested, if you were medium security, would you normally be able to utter a statement?
7: Yes. So thirty seconds or less, the answer is yes. And
1: so if the government has determined that he can be in a medium security prison, why then and I think that's their mistake, but nonetheless, if they feel that he is safe to be there and that's the appropriate place for him, then I would argue, well, then why should he not be able to say you can't have it both ways. You can't argue this man is such a horrendous danger to the world that he can't speak, but also that he is such a non danger that we can put him in medium security. I don't see that that jibes
7: yeah in 10 seconds or less cuz i know we're tight on time there are very very few reasons that you would muzzle uh an inmate it could have something to do with their treatment plan it could have something to do with victim safety but other than that they have as much right to talk to the media if the media are interested yep. as anybody else and they're they're not they're not going to be able to glorify their crimes they'll be shut down but something else i think the door would be wide open for them to speak
1: Ari Goldkind, Toronto criminal lawyer and legal expert, media commentator. We love having you on here. Thanks for doing
8: it today. Great to be with you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This
5: is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's
8: talk. 900 Down in the trenches, ready for force, here
1: We learned today that this band Monster Truck is going to be performing as part of the Grey Cup Festival. It's on Grey Cup Day as part of the neighborhood block party, which, uh, quite frankly, I think is awesome. We bring in Jeremy Weiderman. He is a guitarist with Monster Truck. It's been a long time since we talked to Jeremy, but how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I am well. We were talking just before the break that we believe there is a bylaw in place in Hamilton that requires people to be fans of you guys. Are you familiar with that one? I don't know about
8: that one, but uh, I could see that coming in to pass at the City Hall.
1: Yeah, well, I'd push for it. I'd push for it. You you guys are going to be on Grey Cup Day, part of this neighborhood block party, which I believe is in the forecourt of the stadium. And I was laughing because it says uh, it's for for ticket holders of the Grey Cup game. And I thought, nobody's going to need a ticket to hear you guys. If they're within five square miles of the stadium, they're probably going to hear you that day.
8: I would imagine so, yeah, that's probably accurate. <laughs> is that something you guys
1: are, yeah, I mean, you guys like being one of the loud bands, right? That, that's something, that's a point of pride. Let's let's make sure that people are not missing us when we're playing somewhere.
8: Um, kind of, but as we got older, we learned like the finer points of keeping things within a reasonable level, at least for ourselves and whether or not the sound guy who's mixing us, which is usually our guy keeps it within the bounds of reality is uh <laughs> it's something we ask for because I, there's really no advantage to blowing people's ears out 10 minutes into the set and then having them not be able to hear the rest of it Fair so point. there's definitely a fine line to walk there but um yeah, we're, I mean, we're obviously on the louder side of, of, of the spectrum. Fair
1: point. You're not You're not reaching Spinal Tap level yet, where you are known as Britain's loudest band. You're not Hamilton's, well, maybe you are Hamilton's loudest band. I don't know. Dirty Neil might want to put up an argument with that one. They, they'd probably say they're the loudest band, but you know what? It's all good. What have you guys been up to? Because it's been uh, it's been you know difficult times. I mean, I know we're out of COVID now and things are getting back to normal-ish. But for every band and every musician that I've talked to, the last few years have been kind of crazy. What have you guys been doing?
8: Um, well, we put out the new record. That was something that we kind of um, recorded over. Uh, I think I can't even remember at this point. It was definitely over part of COVID, but it was also part of the plan to do that recording then, anyways. So we were already planning on going into somewhat of a downtime right as the beginning of the pandemic started. So it wasn't as bad of timing as it could have been otherwise. Um, But of course it brought a bunch of other challenges and hurt the touring uh, capabilities for the couple of years there. And now with the prices of everything, we're also further impacted by that. So um, yeah, it's been tough, but you know, we've, we've, come up with a couple small ideas to kind of, you know, bring ourselves back around to, to playing shows more often. And, you know, we're still, uh, you know, promoting the new record and we've got songs at, uh, at the radio and, you know, the YouTube keeps spinning. So it's it's uh, it's a new world, but it's one that we're still adapting to.
1: Well, that song was from your new album from last year. And, and I wonder, because I, when I listened to that, And anyone who's heard it before, I mean, you hear that and immediately, I think most people know, oh, that's monster truck. It sounds like a monster truck song. And you know, so many artists, so many people who play music, they say, I want to be able to evolve and I want to be able to try new things. And can you guys do that? Like, do you think your audience will say, Hey, you know what, if, if, if monster truck comes out with a reggae ska version of whatever, and puts a little bit of noise into it, we're good. Or, you know what, do they want monster truck as they've always had monster truck
8: i mean you got to ask everyone individually there's a lot going on there i mean i've personally never been one for going crazy with the experimentation especially when something works and maybe to my own detriment i'm just happy to continue putting out records that sound the same um i know there's definitely people out there in the past that have wished that we've you know pushed the boundaries a little bit more but that being said there's definitely been fun times in the jam space where we've taken one of our songs and made a reggae version of it really, and been surprised at how easily uh, it turned into something awesome and uh, we've just never really like explored that side of it we take so much time to put records out that we we maybe like probably to our, our, our our at least our biggest weakness is like the amount of time that we've taken between albums and our inability to just kind of let go a little bit and put out more and varied material over the years but uh it's just the kind of the nature of it so the the fans of ours who really just want you know wherever you know we're happy with brown ep or furiosity and wanted us to keep making those records over and over again they're probably happy and we've probably lost a few fans that expect more of an evolution in the process
1: What, what i love the fact you didn't really jam a reggae version of one of your songs have you
8: Oh yeah, really? Yeah, I, there was a. It was an older song called "Space Nebula," and I made a completely. Well, I was in ska bands when I was a teenager, so I do know that some of the stylistic traits of the, of that music. And I <laughs> one uh, one of the rehearsals, I was I was screwing around with a with a reggae version of "Space Nebula," and it's, <laughs> it's I I argue that there's a chance that it might be better than the original. <laughs>
1: Would you ever, have you ever, or would you ever do one of those, like really take a wild chance and do one of those in a concert?
8: Uh, No, because we're not risk takers. At least again, I, I would hold, I'm speaking for myself. And again, I'm, I've been r- restrictively rigid over the years as far as uh, taking chances, trying to evolve it into a new sound or doing anything out of the, like, I like ACDC, you know, and I like um you know when I was a kid I like Green Day and Nirvana and like I really just loved how they kind of stuck to their guns on like what they were doing and as you knew bands.
1: you knew right um, when you heard them start you knew that was a song by ACDC or Green Day or whoever you knew it was recognizable yeah
8: yeah and that I definitely have always wanted that effect to be the case for our band where like somebody hears a new song and they already know it's us um but again I think there's a more nuanced approach to being able to like evolve a little bit with each record and kind of surprising people at least for one or two songs on your album and that's some, something that we've just never really been able to do and I probably should hold myself personally responsible for that inefficiency. Oh uh, I
1: don't you know I don't know that people are complaining Jerry. I think uh, I think a lot of people are happy that you guys don't go crazy and try a bunch cuz as you say what works works. Uh listen we only got a second here but Tell me how this came to be about getting into the Gray Cup Festival. I know, I mean, hometown and you guys were involved, you've been involved with the Tie Cats before. Is this something they called you or were you like, "Okay, we're ready, just, you know, tell us what we want to do." How how did this happen?
8: Um, I don't know, man. Like I would have been like kind of genuinely disappointed if they hadn't approached us because of the um just because of how we've been involved in the past, you know, we've played halftime. I think we played halftime twice. I could be wrong about that. My brain is a little melted over the years, but um, you know, we've we you know we are as entrenched in Hamilton as it possibly could can get. We've been here our entire lives. The band is is completely the result of the city and uh and our ability to actually, you know cut our teeth here in the venues and uh so just being a part of it seems like a staple and seems like something that just is i imagine whoever made the call for it just felt like it was a it was a mandatory part of Agreed. the experience and I and I have to agree. Yeah. And uh, I think that I think this is gonna be a great time. I
1: would absolutely agree as well. Uh the neighborhood block party, you guys are on the day of the Grey Cup, so on the Sunday playing, as I say, outdoors. And if you are anywhere near Tim Horton's field around that time, open your windows. I'm sure you will hear Jeremy in the group and uh and you will love it. Jeremy, really appreciate you doing this. Thanks for the time as always.
8: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been too long.
1: It has been way too long. That is Jeremy Widerman from Monster Truck. And I am not kidding, if you are nearby Crack a window, you will hear. They, they, they do not play a lot of delicate, understated... <laughs> It's, the, it's Be what you balance expect. That day. Yeah, all ballads, all right. All ballads that day. There's there's Jeremy's yeah. assurance. <laughs> we can end this war in Yorktown. Cut them off at sea, but for this to succeed, there's someone
0: else we need. I know Eric so what to trench, in French. I mean. Eric so to What's he gonna do in the bench?
1: I mean. Eric Hamilton no today here on 900 CHML. We have very few guests who have their own theme song. Well, there's one of them, Eric Cam, who is the uh, Professor of Macroeconomics, Monetary Economics, International Monetary Economics, and Implications of Monetary Growth at Toronto Metropolitan University. How are you today?
0: You know, uh, this has not been the best couple of weeks, but every time I hear my theme music, it just puts me in a good mood.
1: Well, we'll get to that other part about why it's not been a great couple of weeks in a second, but let's go first, because we've got two things I want to talk to you about today. Uh, Let's go first to what we learned today. The interest rates, the Bank of Canada has decided that it's not going to touch interest rates because it says, hey, the economy is slowing down a bit and so inflation is dropping off. That all sounds lovely, uh, but I keep coming back to this idea that in order for us not to have higher interest rates, we are manufacturing pain or we must have pain in order to not have pain. It's sort of a, a weird dichotomy
0: well you're not wrong i mean first of all you know in bureaucracy and in government that that eventually governments always do the right thing after everything else has been tried (laughs) and so i look at this as an example of that um they raise the rate way too fast way too strong 10 times in the matter of really what is a few months they put that right on the back of far too many middle-income canadians who are now by the latest polls one paycheck or even a 200 dollars, away from insolvency and so i've listened. i'm out of the closet on this i said that rates did have to go up they could not stay basically at zero percent forever but i never thought that the bank of canada would throw the system on overdrive and do it as fast as they can and so i'm really glad that today scott the bank actually i hope looked at all of the leading macroeconomic indicators in our economy, because I took a quick look at them this afternoon and they're flat. In fact, they're at zero. In fact, they're all trending downward. And so I'd like to think that there's a little learning by doing here in the model. The Bank of Canada said, well, with the employment market looking flat, with aggregate demand looking flat, consumption looking flat, investment looking flat, and I'm not gonna bore the audience with all the other indicators, Maybe it's best if we just throw the brakes on this thing for now and let the system kind of be and let people try to get their feet under them. Now, in my opinion, could they do a lot more in terms of increasing disposable income? Yes, but not raising rates at a time of economic instability. Well, Scott, it's a start.
1: Well, but if we already are having the economy cooling and things we know are very expensive. Now, I know inflation is sort of leveling off a bit. We have heard nothing in recent months except wait till 2024 when, I don't know, some crazy percentage, I can't remember the number of people have to renegotiate their mortgages and things are about to get like really, really difficult here. Holding it at 5% instead of going up to 5.25 or something like that. That's not going to dramatically change what is looming very soon for an awful lot of people.
0: That's right. It actually should be lower than it is, but I've given up I've given up hope that they're going to bring it down uh, frankly, anytime soon. I don't think it's gonna come down next year more than maybe a quarter point. I mean, there was that survey this week where they said that people's perceptions of inflation and actual inflation are are widening, that uh that there's a disconnect between what people think And what is reality? And that is that disconnect is well learned for hardworking Canadians, Scott, because what's still way too expensive food, gasoline, rent, housing, interest, right? It's the things that people are inelastic goods, the things that people absolutely have to buy that number you're so worried about, you should be because it's 80% four to five mortgages in Canada have not been renegotiated yet so and with we know that the labor market is now finally feeling the effect the 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 effects of inflation and it's flattening out so there's a a, again there was another um theory out there that people are going to have to take second jobs to afford their lives well that's wonderful but if there's no jobs there's no second job and so that's where we are right now i think we're at a very very shaky time In our economic history i don't perceive good things coming in 2024 um and i don't see any macro indicator that's that's going to um prove me wrong today i mean things change things change in a heartbeat and we'll see what the new year brings but for right now i have to say don't get me wrong i'm not doing a standing ovation for the bank of canada i think what they've done in terms of the speed of these adjustments are heinous And really, really hard on people who want luxuries like food and clothing and a roof over their heads. But at least, at least when they could have raised it, they didn't.
1: You're going to have to be a little careful there. You might poke your tongue right through your cheek. Um, so the the idea, though, that if inflation comes down, which they're trying to do, so we're not going to raise, but if, if inflation were to nudge back up even a little bit, we're now going to raise these interest rates. Well, you just talked about all these people that have to renegotiate their mortgages. The flip side of that, though, is that would be more encouraging if when inflation comes down, prices drop back to where they were but we know darn well that there is not one company that is going to low even if inflation were to completely go away not one company is going to drop their prices back to where they were because now it's just extra money in your pocket because we've got more money
0: you know capitalism is a funny thing right we tend to like it and we tend to expound on the virtues of markets but You've hit on one of the problems, which is we like to believe that things like wages and prices are fully flexible, but in the real world, the one that I hope most of us live in, they're not fully flexible. They're not flexible at all. And those prices, you're right, they're not going to come down, not to any levels that are going to match what people need to have their incomes uh, be where they were in real terms where they were a few years ago so no that's a good point prices are going to stay high whether it's gas whether it's food whether it's staples whether it's resources those prices aren't coming down anytime fast and and frankly i don't care whether they raise or lower rates um firms are, are used to these new profits and i am a free market guy mostly because i don't think the government can do much about it i don't think we can legislate prices and wage and price controls as we know from the 1970s and 80s they don't work so you're right. We are in a new high price environment and we're going to have to deal with it. Do I wish our government was dealing with it a little bit better? Yeah, but you're right. I mean, your point is very well taken. These new high prices, new high profits in many industries, they're not going in anywhere, Scott.
1: Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, I, I always, I, I mean, I'm a capitalist too, but only, well, not only, because none of the other markets or systems have been proven to be better. It's the best the one we've got. But I just wonder if there is a company out there that has something, let's say you're a a company that's selling something that might be sold in the grocery store and there's competition for whatever it is. Man, you drop your prices a bit these days. I cannot believe that all of a sudden you are not going to be leading the market in sales. If you were to go back down, if you could even advertise, hey, inflation has dropped, we've dropped our prices. Even if you drop your prices 3%, people I think would latch onto that.
0: It would be a great idea, but your whole argument is, uh, in a sense, presuming one thing, and that's competition. And we know that this country is dreadful with its level of competition. And if if I can, you may have seen this week that the Royal Bank of Canada proposed a $13.5 billion takeover of HSBC. And the government is saying that maybe we shouldn't allow it. Well, of course we shouldn't allow it. Six banks in this country own 90% of all the mortgages in this country. What this country needs is more, not less competition. So many things would work better. And so many things would work better according to what neoclassical economics says in our textbooks. One of the reasons when students say to me, if if the model predicts this, but it's not happening, what are the reasons in Canada? What makes canada special and one of the reasons in canada is concentration of ownership we have too much of it so your argument is brilliant if the competitive forces were out there but in this country we tend to reinforce monopolies and duopolies and so unfortunately the competitive argument fails but it's not your fault you went to a good university
1: <laughs> we were chatting before the break about something else talking about the economy that's his area where he teaches but Wanted to keep in mind, he was willing to stick around and talk about this because uh, his university, Toronto Metropolitan University, has been at the center of controversy like many, many universities and other places over the past few days, uh, past few weeks. But in particular, Toronto Metropolitan University, because students, 70 students, uh, law students at the Lincoln Alexander School of Law, I'm sure Lincoln Alexander would be horrified if he was alive uh, to know that his name was being used like this, but have written a letter Condemning Israel, saying Israel's not a country, uh, basically blaming Israel for what's happened over there and endorsing and enthusiastically supporting all forms of Palestinian resistance, which many are saying is a an endorsement of the horrible things that happened a couple Saturdays ago. Uh, Eric, I mean, what do you do when you're at the school and this stuff is going on? I, I, I imagine there's part of you that is embarrassed to be associated with something like this, but I I imagine also there's probably stronger words than that.
0: In 2001, a little school called Ryerson hired me and took a chance on a kid with a York PhD when other schools wouldn't. And I've been so proud through Ryerson, through Toronto metropolitan to represent and to teach and do research for that school. And one of the things that they talk about is how you should bring your whole self to work and how work should be a safe space. But after this week, safe for who? I mean, I learned, it confirmed what so many people talk about under their breath, that I work in a toxic, anti-Semitic environment and it is no longer safe. I mean, maybe for some people, but not for Jewish people. And I think what drove me the most crazy was that letter was the most ugly thing I've seen in in two weeks of ugliness. And those 74 cowards took their name off of it. Now, luckily, some people screenshot it and it has been circulated. And I don't mind telling you that I have received way too many emails to count from lawyers, Jewish, not Jewish, male, female. And they wanted two things. Send me all of the names that you can and to note that those people committed professional suicide. And that blacklist is making its way quickly and that's the reason why on the campus today a group of students protested their names having gotten out after they removed it. So I'm sorry to be a little bit wordy Scott, but it is really really hard to watch people chanting intifada and basically chanting for the 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 the, the, the abolition, the destruction, the destruction and getting rid of the state of Israel and Jewish people three feet from where your office is. It has been an absolutely disgusting two weeks. You know,
1: as I was, I heard this and we've seen examples elsewhere, um, the one thing that keeps coming to mind is universities have become such Uh, delicate places where feelings anyone who expresses any kind of offense at anything it's a microaggression and schools have programs brought in and you can you know we're going to do everything to make safe spaces and I can't imagine any other group If it was a LGBTQ group or a Muslim group or a black group or take your pick of minority groups that are often identified as groups that are being hassled or harangued or picked on or persecuted. I can't imagine there's another group that nothing would have been done if this was the activity directed towards it.
0: Let me give you two very quickly. If this aggression and ugliness would have happened against indigenous people. Yes, yes. Indigenous people, the reason that we changed the damn name of the university, there'd be hell to pay. Or if this had been the black community, which by the way, the Jews stood up when George Floyd died and said, this is wrong and we have to stick together. But you know what happened last week? Black Lives Matter came out in support of Hamas. So you know what, your point is so well put that it makes me wanna cry. Anti-Semitism is the hate that is allowed and that is justified. And this week what happened at the law school just it just it solidifies it. It's okay. It's acceptable. We don't have to drown it out the way we have to drown out other hatreds. And as a father, as a professor, and as a Jew, I'm horrified.
1: Well, and I you know what I I I stand with you on this one. I mean, I I grew up with an awful lot of people. I grew up in a part of Toronto that was a very Jewish part of Toronto and have an awful lot of friends and I you know, I have not spoken to them about this, but it, as I say, it outrages me to think that this is the one thing that's allowed, or even if it's not allowed, it's tacitly allowed because nothing seemingly is being done about it. And, you know, I was talking to uh, to someone about something that happened at another school, and the argument was, or the suggestion was, well, you know, the people who are tearing down those posters of people who have been kidnapped, well, they weren't authorized, to, those posters were not authorized. Again, I go back to my point. If that had been a Black Lives Matter poster or something like that that had been put up there and someone tore it down, whether it was authorized or not, you're absolutely right. This would have been outrage, absolute outrage, and something would have been done. I just, as I say, Eric, I'm, I, I, I'm saddened that you and other people have to go through this. It's To me, it's a complete whiff by university leadership, at, at not just yours, at all kinds of universities, but I, I appreciate you talking about it.
0: You know what? It's Thank you very much. The silence from the university has been deafening because the only people speaking are the anti-Semites. And I appreciate you giving me five minutes to talk about it, Scott, as always.
1: Uh, that is Eric Cam from Toronto Metropolitan University. Always appreciate having
0: you on, Eric. Thanks for doing this. Stay healthy, my friend. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live, weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
1: That is our time today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Lots already on the table. We're past the halfway point. The weekend is in sight. Have a great night.